Well, this is a picture of the food that was taken to River City Ministry to help feed the um, Thanksgiving dinner that was served, and this is the desserts that we provided. I want to say thanks to everyone who put the desserts together and pro provided this, and to Gil Myatt for transporting it down there. And um, just so you'll know, I think that when I see something like this, I think about Leroux Blair, I believe it was, the first person I heard use the expression butter, sugar, and lard, which is what that is, but it's really good. And uh, from my last fasting blood work about a month ago, my triglycerides are in the 540s instead of the 140s where they belong. So just seeing that, it's going to make them go up, I think, some. Anyway, I appreciate all those who helped to do that. And the people at River City Ministry were were amazed at the outpouring and the, the things that we provided. So good job, everyone. Why do you work for Jesus? Have you ever sort of analyzed yourself and asked yourself, why do I do what I do in the church? And what's it all about? And, and why am I here? Or what's, the, what's behind this? Why am I doing this? Could it be because of guilt somehow? And it's been instilled in your mind and in your heart that you've got to do this and, and you've got to make up something for what you've done wrong in the past? Or could it be that you're trying to earn favor with the church members or with God? That if I do enough stuff and, and get busy enough, then God will love me more or He'll take notice of this. Or maybe the idea of getting some stars in my crown that I'll be rewarded greatly because of how much work how productive I am in the church. Sometimes people answer the call of duty, and duty motivates strongly. In fact, many of us look back to the time of World War II, our generation before us, the greatest generation, as some call it, that went to war, and they answered the call of duty, that something has to be done here, and we've got to stand up to this enemy and these enemies and, and, and produce. We've got to help save ourselves and help save the, the, the free world, and, and that call of duty is still out there. And it's a great thing to recognize the call that duty has, and so I'll, I'll, you can count on me, I'll do it. I'll answer the call of duty. So maybe that's part of what motivates us when we try to work in the church and we think, well, I, I'm, I'm supposed to do this. I'm answering the call of duty. What is it that motivated the people in the New Testament like, like Peter and Paul and James and others? What was behind, what was the driving force that kept them going, this proskineo, this pressing forward toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, this pressing on and this keeping the pressure in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, there's another concept here beyond the call of duty or the necessity of, of working for God and trying to earn favor. It was the idea of love. And Paul said there to the church at Corinth in his second letter, for the love of Christ constrains us or controls us. And he's saying there that even beyond the call of duty, which is a high calling, it's a great thing to stand up and say, yes, sir, you can count on me. I'll do it. I'll be there. I'll answer. I'm a, I'm a dutiful person. But here... Paul says it's the love of Christ, the, the love that he has for us and the love we have for him. That is the controlling factor that constrains us, that pushes us. But then there's even more than that. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, listen to the thankfulness of Paul as he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. And so Paul recognizes that as bad a person as he was and how he just did not deserve any mercy or grace based on his lifestyle, being a violent aggressor, persecuting the church, laying waste the church, hunting down people who were of the way so that he could bring them bound back to Jerusalem. He knew that he didn't deserve even forgiveness. And yet, looking at the mercy of Christ and the love of Christ, 
he could see and reframe this. In fact, Jesus taught about this very same thing in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, when there was this slight of not washing or showing the, the normal courtesy to Jesus, and yet here's a woman, a sinful woman. She cries great tears. She washes his feet with her tears and dries her, his feet with her hair. And, and uh, some were rebuking her for doing that and rebuking Jesus for letting her do it. And Jesus said, you know, let me explain something here. Suppose there, was, there were two debtors, and one of them owed 500 denarii, and the other one owed 50 denarii, and neither one of them could pay, but their creditor forgave them both. Which one of those two do you think would love him more? Which one of those two do you think would really get the impact the most? We're talking this, this uh, series that Sean's been doing, the point of impact. And here's some great ones. And here, here is one where he says, which one, of these things, which one of these two debtors do you think would be the most impressed, would be the most grateful, would have the most love for the, the, their creditor? And he said, well, I suppose it would be the one who owed the most. And the idea was that's right. If you get the idea how much you have been forgiven, how much God loves you in spite of who you are and what you've been doing, then you get the idea that there's something wonderful here, something that makes you want to express your gratefulness and your gratitude. And there are several things that stand out in the life of Paul and other apostles, other New Testament writers, about what was behind them, what was in their heart, what motivated them. And Paul's motivation, it seems, could be summarized in addition to other things, but mainly I would see in this, his motivation was gratitude. I remember one time when I was young, my grandpa had a saying that always kind of stuck with me. Somebody would ask him how he's doing, and he'd say, Well, I'm so glad I'm a living, I can't hardly stand it. And you know, sometimes you start looking at the prognosis and the arthritis and the other things that are high and the things that are low that should be high, and, and you look at the grave coming and the, the decades you've lived and all that, and you start thinking, you know, it's a pretty good thing to be able to be upright and take nourishment, to be able to get around even if you limp. It's good to, to put your shoes on and get going. So as you look at the life of Paul, some things stand out as, as to his gratitude. And one thing stands out is that he was grateful that Christ had chosen him. He had not gone looking for Christ. He had gone looking for Christians. He was a man with a good conscience. He had been trained all of his life sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, and as he explained himself, as touching the law, I was a Pharisee. I was one of these people who had been trained in the law out both ends and through the middle. I knew the law, and I knew that God's people were challenged and commissioned to be faithful and not change one iota, not leave undone anything, to do the whole law, and so I'm going to keep that law. And here's a group of people who are not keeping sacrifices. They're not going to the high priest in Jerusalem. They're not messing with the temple. They're doing it all wrong. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to find them and I'm going to hunt them down and I'm going to set the record straight. So here was a man who was blinded, as it were, by his tradition, even though it was a right one. It was what God wanted, but he didn't know the rest of the story. He had not yet learned about this Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and this one sacrifice was offered once and for all, and so you don't go to the temple, and you don't offer these blood sacrifices anymore. That's been handled. Christ now is the high priest, so he hadn't gotten the message yet. <clears throat> He's out on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he is looking for trouble. He's looking for men and women who were of this way, these Christians. He's going to bind them and take them to Jerusalem and give them their just desserts. And so that's what he's looking for. He's not looking for Christ. But then on the road to Damascus, he stood amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. He was overwhelmed by this great light. He was blinded. He fell to his knees. What would you have me to do, Lord? And in the conversation there, as Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You're, you're fighting a losing battle here. And as he has this conversation with, 
with Saul of Tarsus. Saul says, well, what do you want me to do, Lord? And he says, well, go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. So he goes into the city, but he's blind. He doesn't eat for three days. And he's blind for three days and he's praying. And then Jesus talks to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul and lay hands on him and he'll receive his sight. And he's expecting you and he's praying. And Ananias is like, whoa, wait a minute. You want me to go where this guy is, this Saul, and touch him, lay hands on him? He'll grab me and put me in handcuffs. What's this about? I've heard about him. He's looking for trouble. He's bringing these people bound to Jerusalem. And and Jesus said to him, you go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Acts 9 and verse 15. So Jesus is saying, I've got a plan for this fellow. I'm going to take this full steam ahead locomotive that's on the wrong track. He thinks he's on the right track, but I'm going to throw the spur switch and I'm going to put him over here on the right track. I'm going to use that bundle of energy and I'm going to set the record straight with him. So you go to him. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. To the Romans, Paul said, you are also the chosen of Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, as he gave the great lesson and illustration of him being the vine, the true vine, and the disciples being the branches of that vine, he says, you have not chosen me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So here Jesus is saying, look, This is the way this is playing out. I came to this earth to seek and to save the lost, and I found you, and I chose you. And yes, you agreed and followed me, but it was my idea. I came to you first. Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 to the recipients of his letter, you are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're set aside. You're sanctified for good works. And so you've been been zeroed in on by God the Father, by Christ, and you've been picked out. And in view of the eternal weight of glory... Paul could see that this momentary light affliction has no comparison and that it was a good thing to be chosen to suffer for Christ. Count it all joy then, we would say, to be tested and to be tried. Jesus even said, look, when you get into trouble for my sake and the Gospels, when people speak all manner of evil against you, you just remember you're in good company. You ought to be glad and thankful every day that you are alive and kicking, that you're a part of the family of God and that you've been chosen to suffer for my sake. And you look at the life of Christ, he did his greatest redemptive act. He did his greatest good in the world when he was under the severest persecution all the way to the cross. And finally, as he gives up the ghost and accomplishes the mission of heaven, he opens the way for many sons to glory. He shows us about forgiveness. He shows us about dedication and faithfulness even unto death. And so we'll count it all joy to be tested and tried. And when God, one like Abraham or Joseph or anyone else, he would show them the way that they must suffer. They would have to be tested. And so they were. So Paul was grateful that Christ had chosen him, had picked him out. I've got, I'm going to make him the great lion of God. I'm going to send him with a mission to the Gentiles, and he's going to bear my name. And he did that. A second thing Paul was grateful for was that he was trusted by Christ. He was grateful that in, in Christ looking over his life as unworthy as it was, he was allowed or approved of by God to be put in trust with the gospel. This is First Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. When Paul, talking to the church there, he said, you remember how we acted when we were in your midst? 
those that were with me and myself, I treated you like a father loves his children, like a nursing mother loves for her children. That's the way we behaved ourselves before you. And God put us in trust with the gospel. So we brought that to you, and we shared our very lives with you to give you this gospel. Paul never forgot what he had been, and he viewed himself as a moral abortion. He said, I was like a child untimely born, and you know what trouble that can be. He said, that's the way I was morally and spiritually. I was all off track here. And so God had chosen Paul while he was still Saul, while he was still messed up. God could work with him and, and show him the truth, and God could plant that seed in an honest and good heart, and Saul of Tarsus could turn around and say, well, I don't have any contest here, Lord. What do you want me to do? We were all moral failures, <clears throat> untimely born in that sense. In our sins where we miss the mark and do not do what is required, or in our transgressions where we go beyond the mark and commit things we shouldn't be doing, or in our iniquities where we practice is good, or in our guile where we deal with deceit and projecting what is false. And so to the church at Corinth, Paul would say to them, you know, y'all used to be messed up like this too. You used to be idolaters. You used to be whoremongers, and, and you used to be uh, homosexuals and effeminate and all those things, but, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. Yes, your life was messed up, but somehow things got turned around and God could see the good in you even while you were, while you were evil. And such were some of you, he said, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. And in reminding him of that, they could say, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. And all the beautiful songs we sing that express that, they were learning that firsthand and they had experienced it. So this means, as Paul would put it, Christ trusts us with the gospel. Even though we're not perfect, even though we're lacking a lot and have a lot of growth to do, some maybe more than others, and yet Christ has entrusted us with the gospel. And Paul was glad of that. He said, look, I've got the dynamite. I've got the power of God unto salvation. I'll take it to Rome. I'll take it wherever people will listen. And he was glad that he had this trust by Christ. And we have it too. If you stop and think about it, the church becomes the, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church becomes the keeping of the light. It shares the seed and sows the seed. And so who else will share it if we don't? And the third thing Paul was grateful for was that God had given him strength and power. So now he's been picked and chosen, and he's been saved as he obeys the gospel, as we read about there, as he's washed away thy sins, as Ananias told him, and he did that. But we also learn from Philippians 4 and verse 13, as Paul writes his joyous letter to the church at Philippi. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He goes on to say in chapter 4 and verse 19, My God shall supply all your need according to the riches of His grace. He'll give you everything you need, and He'll strengthen you. And Paul never said in all of his life, look what I've done, look what I've done, but rather, look what Christ has enabled me to do. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul's first letter to Timothy, verse 11 and 12, he says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me, because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. So there again, he says, he, he picked me, and he, he, he said, well, I trust you, and I'll give you this gospel. I think you'll do it, and, I may, and I'll give you the strength you need. And so Paul would say on occasion to Timothy and to others, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Sometimes Paul would even say, you know what, brethren, it's a small thing to me that I should be judged of you. 
He's thinking, I'm listening to God. I'm judged by God. And that's a big enough calling right there. If I can get by God, I can get by the brethren. So he's focused on how that God never required anything of him that he could not do, and he doesn't require it of us either. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, there's a promise there that when temptation comes, when we are tested and tried, that God will provide also the way of escape. That's a powerful concept, that we're, we've been given the strength and, a, and an exit door, a way out of this mess when the temptation comes. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go and I'll go with you. Go into all the world and make disciples, preach the gospel, baptize them, and I'll be with you always, even till the end of the world. And then to, to Timothy, Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of love and of power and a sound mind. And so Paul would say then, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. I'll take it anywhere. Dunamis is in the Greek text there for the power of God. It's like dynamite. It has the power to break the hardest heart where nothing else can. Though a person could speak with the tongues of men and of angels. If he didn't have love, it wouldn't profit him anything. But sometimes people are not impressed with the human ability. But the message, the message when it's clear and pure and left to itself... It is the very power of God to salvation. A fourth thing and a final thing Paul was grateful for was that he had been sent. He was an apostle. That's what an apostle means. It means someone who is sent with a mission. But how did Paul view his leadership role and his ministry and his calling and his mission? Listen to one description in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, beginning. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. The King James Version says necessity is laid upon me. I have a burden to bear that's ungetoverable because I've just got to bear this. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Now notice how he's, he's developing this thought. He says, now, when I'm having a good day and when I go into town and I have an audience of believers or people who are interested in the Word and I preach that, and everybody says, Amen, brother, and they want to hear it, and people are saved and obey the gospel, and just all this is just wonderful, and they're patting me on the back and feeding me a potluck with all this butter, sugar, and lard, and everything is great, then I have this in heaven too. That's my attitude. When everything is going great, then I have a reward. But some days it's not going so great. And when I go to a place like Lister, they stone me and leave me for dead. But I got up, dusted myself off, went back into town and preached, left the next day on my schedule, not on theirs. And so when things are not going well, when it's against my will and they're doing things to me I don't like, then what do I do? I throw in the towel and quit? No, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. I've got to do this because God has laid this on me and has given me this mission. And he knew that if he didn't do it, who would do it? Because Christians are empowered with this and challenged with this charge. So then he said, what is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. So as to make full use of my right, in the, not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Then he goes on to describe how he becomes all things to all men so that he might win some of them. But notice this phrase, necessity is laid upon me. The Greek term there is hanangasane. It has an interesting meaning. It means to almost force something. It means to coerce. It means to compel. And it's the same words that's used when Jesus was so impressive to the audience around him, the multitude said, well, this man, he can feed a whole army. He can make fish and stones into bread, and he can, he can feed an army, and he can heal them if they get stabbed or, or stuck with a spear. So... Let's make him king. And so they were going to make him, force him to be king, Matthew 14, verse 22. They were going to force him to be king, and he didn't want that because he wasn't going to be an earthly king. 
He has a spiritual kingdom. So in all that pressure, he says to his disciples, get in the boat. And that's the phrase used there. Get in the boat. We're going across. Get in there. In other words, I'm pushing, I'm forcing, I'm coercing. And so Paul says, I have that on me. If I think about whether to preach the gospel or not, whether to be a witness of Christ or not, whether to go on my mission as an apostle, then I have to remember I've got this laid on me, this necessity. I've got to do it. And there's another word here in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1 when he says we are stewards of the mysteries of God. So this is another concept that Paul adds to this, his motivation. He says, I'm a steward. I've been given a trust. In fact, the word there for steward is huperetes, which means an under rower. And the word picture behind this is people in a galley or in the bottom of a ship with the long oars, and they're rowing and, and oaring, rowing the ship, and someone standing there, captain or their, their boss or whatever, their coach is above them, and he's shouting out to them, lean on the oars, go, go, and he's giving them the cadence. And he cries out, and he gives them the, the orders, and they're listening. Heave ho, or, or whatever they're hearing, and they're staying with the mark and staying with the cadence. And that's what an under-rower is, someone who listens to the orders and who does what they're told and keeps up with it and keeps the time. And so he says, a stewardship is entrusted to me. Jesus said, this is how I put it to you all. By the same way that the Father sent me into the earth, I send you out into the earth. John 20 and verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. That means by the same authority of heaven, I'm sending you. For the same purposes, the same mission, to seek and to save the lost, I'm sending you. And in the same way, to go out and make a difference. And so in Mark 10 and verse 45, Jesus further explained, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. So you, my disciples, are to go do that and go minister. Paul carried the gospel to all the known world of his day. He experienced great things and great suffering. But he also experienced great blessing and great reward. And so his motivation was gratitude. He was grateful that God chose him and that God strengthened him and God trusted him and God sent him. One time he had to defend his apostleship, it seemed, or at least he felt that way because of criticism. And so he had to say, okay, listen, let me, let me give you my credentials. I'll tell you who's an apostle and who's not. I'll tell you who works for the Lord and who doesn't. So he says in 1 Corinthians 11, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane, but I am even more so if they are. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. One time for a night and a day I floated around out there in the, in the ocean. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, from my countrymen, from the Gentiles, from dangers in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardships through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from such external things. It's hard for me to sleep sometimes because I have this thing inside of me. It's the concern of all the churches. So at 3 a.m., whether I've had Prilosec or not, I wake up and think, I wonder how the brethren at Philippi are doing. Did they get my letter? Did it encourage them? Has some of them already dropped out and quit? Are the brethren crossways with each other and bickering and fighting? Has there been a misunderstanding? What's going on there? And so he thinks about this sometimes from the prison cell. 
And then on top of all that, he says, who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense concern? He's thinking, you, don't, you think I'm just going to let this slide? Look what I've been through and look at it. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. And you think I'm going to let people drop out of the church without even caring about it? Well, necessity is laid upon me. And if I have to boast, I'll just boast in what pertains to my weakness. And then finally, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 through 8, near the end of his life, probably in prison, he's thinking about how he's got one foot in the grave. He's thinking about all these things that he's been through and suffered for Christ. All the brethren in all these churches, he's writing to Timothy, and, and he's ending on a positive note when he says, For I'm, ready, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And in the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's as though Paul would say, look, I've been through all this, but I've remained faithful. Yes, it's been tough, but I love the Lord and he loves me and I'm so grateful. I'm so glad I'm a living, I can't hardly stand it. And so when it's all over with, there's a reward laid up for me. Paul is saying, I get all this and heaven too. Yes, it's been hard. I've been beaten and stoned and they tried to kill me. They forbid me to preach. They put me in jail, all these things. But on top of that, here's this love of Christ that constrains me, this necessity that's laid upon me, this mission I have, this power of God to salvation, so I'm going to keep on going. So there, there's where Paul's gratitude lay. There's where his hope lay, was in Christ alone. And he would make that clear in, in, in all of his writings and all of his letters. He would say there's this one thing above all else. And in, and, and in order to have this excellency, this knowledge of Christ, everything else, I count it just a pile of rubbish, if I could have this excellency of the knowledge of Him, because the hope of the world is in Christ alone. And the beautiful scene that Elwood talked about this morning and the scene in Revelation of the heaven and the culmination of all these good things, Paul would say, yes, every day is a day of thanksgiving, and I love the Lord, and He first loved me, and He gave Himself for me, and I give myself for Him, and I get all this and heaven too. Have you put your hope in Jesus Christ? Have you obeyed His will? Have you become a Christian by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins? Have you lived faithfully? If you have a spiritual need this morning to either obey the gospel or to come back to your first love and be restored, ask for prayers and forgiveness, whatever. If you'll let me know what that is as we stand together and as we sing, would you come?